Hi, this is Bob Costas, and you're listening to the ML Sports Platter. The ML Sports Platter, back with you all over the major platforms, Spotify, Google, Apple, Stitcher, Deezer, you name it. Download, subscribe, leave feedback, and a five-star review. I'm on Twitter, at Mike L Sports, and all over the social platforms like YouTube and TikTok and IGTV and Twitter and Facebook. Be on the lookout for all of my ML Sports Take videos and nine minutes with Mike Lindsley. We are brought to you by Barks and Rec Doggy Daycare, Rosie's Corner, Welch and Company Jewelers, and our great, great friends at Empower Federal Credit Union. Log on today to empowerfcu.com. Find your peace of mind at Empower Federal Credit Union, empowerfcu.com. The rise, the fall, the return. It's an HBO original. It's been out here uh, for about over a week, I guess. It's a two-part documentary. You can stream it uh, on HBO Max. And I am absolutely, positively humbled and thrilled to have the director of Tiger on right now. Matthew Hamachek. Matthew, thank you so much. Congratulations. And this documentary is spectacular. Welcome aboard. Oh, thanks so much for saying that. Thank you for having me. So I have this thought that everything changes, you know, for Tiger if he lives a normal child, not even a normal child, somewhat normal, anything normal. If Tiger has a little bit more life to him as a kid, my question for you is this, what becomes of Tiger Woods the golfer? It's a great question. I think in a lot of ways it's unanswerable, though. Um, you know, I think one of the things that we really tried to do when we were making this film, because, you know, one of the first things we did is we reached out to Tiger's camp. And we said, we'd love for you to do this with us and have Tiger tell his own story. And they let us know that because of his obligation, his contractual obligation to golf TV through Discovery, that, you know, he wasn't going to be able to do it. And so what we did is we set out to talk to the people that were sort of there on the front lines, you know, with Tiger, whether mm-hmm. it was in his living room growing up, people like Dina Parr, his first kindergarten teacher, Pete McDaniel, who was Earlwood's biographer and a close friend of the family who spent, you know, days and days and days with them, uh, both on the golf course and off. And, you know, I think they all have very conflicting sort of views about the way Tiger grew up. Um, you know, the way we open up the movie is with Earl Woods talking about how Tiger is going to transcend the game and bring to the, the world, you know, a humanitarianism that has never been seen before. And Earl obviously pushed golf all the time. And I think it raises this sort of interesting how, you know, people should raise children to be specialists or generalists. A specialist or golf, 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 golf. And then, you know, there have been articles written about how uh, to try to do many different sports and try many different things. And the argument there was that by doing multiple different sports, it actually makes you a better athlete overall because you're using other muscles and doing other things. And um, I think it's sort of an endless debate. But the thing is, I, you know, I don't know. Could, would Tiger Woods be the person that he became if he wasn't constantly practicing? I, I, I don't, I think, you know, I, I, I don't think there's an answer to that question. 
Um, and I don't even know if Tiger knows the answer to that question. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's really impossible to say. One thing that <clears throat> I've toyed around with lately, and I think you do it as you get older, you start to kind of see things and and think about things differently and, you know, your lifetime of, of sports, especially working in sports media, and you start to think about, like, the core guys. Like, if somebody said, hey, you know, who's on your lifetime Mount Rushmore? Who's who's the, the who are the four guys of your childhood era? What, however you break it down. And, and for me, there's two guys who are immovable. For me. I mean, they're just immovable, and it's Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods. In what way, in what way, Matt, do you think Tiger, not not the athlete, but the global icon, in what way do you think he was similar to MJ, and in what ways do you think he was different than MJ? Well, you know, in talking to the people that actually were around those guys, whether it was folks at Nike that we talked to or, you know, people like Pete who, who, who hung out with Tiger and obviously observed uh, Jordan as well, I think that the, the similarities are probably more athletic than anything else. Um, these guys were both extremely driven uh, and, you know, were ultra-competitive in a way that I don't think many human beings could be and, um you know, things like that. But the, the way that they were dissimilar, I think, is what's most interesting. You know, Robin Carr, who's in the movie, he was a uh, PR specialist for, for Nike. Um, she talked about how they were desperate to find the next Michael Jordan uh, right around the time that Tiger Woods became pro because, you know, that was sort of the, towards the end of MJ's career and they needed somebody new like that. And they, and they, used, and they marketed Tiger in the same way that they marketed MJ. And what's interesting about that to me is that according to everybody we talked to, their personalities in many ways couldn't be more different. Um, that, that MJ was this extrovert and was sort of a perfect spokesperson for a brain. He was gregarious, he was charming, he was just, you know, had that, that that personality that was well suited to being that brand ambassador, and then in, in, in a lot of ways, according to the people that we talked to, that Tiger was the opposite. He was he really was an introvert and um, was very comfortable being, you know, I guess by himself. And and golf is obviously, you know, when compared to a team sport, it's just such a um, there's so much solitude in it, right? Especially when you're the person who is. Like Tiger, um, you, you know, on the driving range, just hitting thousands of balls by yourself. Maybe sometimes having somebody looking over your shoulder and telling you to change things here and there, a spin coach like Butch or Hank or somebody like that. But there, it, it, it's a totally different sport. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I think if I could think of an athlete who, you know, in talking to these people, and obviously I didn't know nothing about this is just, you know, a totally uninformed opinion, but I, I think if I could find an athlete that, that I would compare it to, there's a, I, I feel like there's a lot more Kobe Bryant in Tiger Woods than there is Michael Jordan. Fair. In the sense that I, I, you, you hear all these stories about Kobe talking about that, like, you know, waking up early in the morning and just going and hitting jump shot or, you know, a fade back, a dribble fade back and shot, dribble fade back shot, and there was this solitude and the sort of, like, you know, introvert um, 
mentality or whatever or personality that that that, that uh, tied the two of them together a little bit. So I don't know. That's an uninformed opinion, but um, I, I definitely think that Tiger is an introvert and MJ was an extrovert. It's the two-part documentary streaming <clears throat> HBO Max Arise the Fall, The Return Tiger. It is spectacular. Take it from me. We're talking to the director, um, Matthew Hamachek, right now on Twitter, at Hamachek. So when, when, when you're doing this documentary and you're directing it and you're putting it together, you know, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, big figures, global icons, guys who make tons of money, there's, there's a lot of positives, and, and these guys obviously have their flaws too. And so, Tiger, we know, we all know what happened when the wheels fell off. Was it, how hard was the balance, Matthew? That's the question. How hard was it doing both sides and, and, and balancing that? Because you do, you do have to be honest about it, you know? No, absolutely. I think, you know, we, when you make a film like this, one of the things that you find yourself doing, I think, if you're doing it the right way, at least in my opinion, is you're listening to the people that you're going to talk to and you're letting them guide you in a lot of ways um, rather than sort of coming in with an agenda and saying, this is the story I'm going to tell and this is, the, this is, the, this is what I want people to take away from it. And, you know, all of the people that we talk to, um, even the people who were sort of unceremoniously cut out of Tiger's life by Tiger, we're all fiercely protective of them to this day. That includes Stevie and his high school girlfriend and Rachel, everybody. And I think they all wanted to make sure we weren't making the salacious version of the story and we also weren't going to be making this sort of glowing, tough piece uh, Tiger Woods story that we've all seen so many times on, you know, uh, uh, golfing networks and things like that. I think that um, in listening to these people, the person that really stuck out to me was Pete McDaniel. And it was when he was talking about how it was during the apology, uh, the scene, it ended up going in the apology press conference scene um, where it's where Tiger's standing in front of the blue curtain. And Pete was talking about how the people that he felt most sorry for was Elon and the kids. And um, he was saying that those kids are someday going to have to learn about some things that no child should ever have to learn about their father. And that really dictated to me and my team, you know, what the line was, which is, look, this, this all happened. Uh, and, and trust me, there is so much more on the cutting room floor that is so much more salacious than what we have in the, in the documentary. But it was the mentality of, okay, there's a chance these kids are going to watch this thing someday. And even, even worse in some ways, uh, that his kids' classmates might watch it someday, and they might bring it up, or something like that. And I think that really guided us in terms of, look, you have to tell the story. Uh, there are some uncomfortable details in this, but let's, let's you know, do it in the, I don't know what the right player put it is, but uh, let's do the bare minimum of it when we're covering it and not get into the truly salacious stuff. Um, and that was a guiding principle. But like I said, it was, it was it, the whole process from start to finish was if we find the right people, let's listen to them and let us tell, uh, let, let them tell us who Tiger Woods is and let them sort of dictate the, uh, the way this movie shapes up. We know the 97, I got two more for you, Matthew. We know that 97 was the Tiger arrival. You know, he'd just gone pro the year before. It, 
shows up at the Masters, dominates, and it's oh my gosh, here we like here he is, like real, like yeah, the amateurs, the three in a row, <laughs> great, sure, but the Masters, what you know, and then it was, and then it was good. Here we go, you know, Nike and the phenomenon and the global stuff and the, the a black golfer winning at Augusta. I mean, all of it just went ba boom when he won the the Masters, but. He wins the PGA in 99, then he has the Tiger Slam, wins the three majors and then the Masters in 01, so he holds that, and then he's good, he's great elite in 02, 05, 06, wins the Open Championships, uh, wins the Masters in 05 as well. That little stretch, late 99, 05, 06, has been talked about, obviously the Tiger Slam in, in and of itself is categorized, but really I go longer than that, I go about five years where he was just, it was out of control. And people talk about the Tiger Slam and that stretch, golfers, Hank Haney, et cetera, teachers, coaches, they'll say, greatest stretch of golf of all time. Can't we argue that that was the greatest stretch by any athlete of all time? I mean, can't you put that Tiger run right there? Take out the sustainability. Take out the, you know, the longevity, the greatest player of all time versus Jack, however you want to argue it. That Kofaxian almost spot right there. I would put that up against anybody. I'd put it up against Gretzky, against against Jordan. I'd put it up against anybody, Tiger Woods, during that time. You know, it's interesting. I think that uh, I think there's arguments to be made, for sure. Um, I think that what I found so incredible about that, that time period also was after 97, um, at, at least to that point, you know, winning the Masters by... by by 12 strokes, right? Uh, arguably some of the greatest golf anybody had ever seen at that point. And uh, then he re- completely retools his swing yep. from 97 till 99. And, and and then also kind of does the exact same thing after, you know, after the Tiger Slam, after 02, it's when he sort of loses Butch and brings on Hank and does it again. And I think that sort of mentality of like the eternal tinker, the person who's never satisfied with um, with with what he's accomplished, even though in both cases he had already played the greatest golf that had ever been seen. Um, and you know, it goes back to this, this sort of this, the first question you asked me, right? It's like you know, it, it is both his. According to the people we talk to, it's it's it sort of both the blessing and the curse of Tiger Woods it's that he can never be satisfied and he's never going to just rest on his laurels. He's going to continue to push himself. But there are also all these people that we talked to who had pointed that and say, yeah, but if he had just stayed with what, you know, with what Butch had taught him and he hadn't shifted to Hank or something like that, you know, would he, would he, would his back have been in better shape? Would he have, you know, better to all these different questions. And it's like, you can't really have one without the other. And these, these questions are all sort of an answer, unanswerable. But what I would say to your original question is, I, you know, it's interesting. I, 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 when you talk about greatest runs of all time and who's the GOAT athlete, I, I always uh, default to Serena Williams. Um, There's another one. Yep. You know, 23 Grand Slam, Grand Slam singles, including one while she was pregnant. I, I you know, I, uh, I, I think winning winning a uh, Grand Slam when you're pregnant is is uh, far more uh, impressive than <laughs> you know no ACL and two fractures in your leg. I, I, uh, I always I always think of Serena as somebody that needs to needs to be at the top of everybody's list of all time. You know, go to athletes. Yeah, so there's 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 no there's no doubt. Yeah, she. I mean, the, the dominance that she's 
put up there as well. You can argue for days and hours on, on shows and podcasts and whatever else. I would challenge that, that Tiger is even greater than Serena. I do realize the pregnant thing, trust me. But uh, sport to sport, yeah. sport to sport, the depth of the PGA Tour that Tiger has played on since 1996-7-ish, it, 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 it wallops women's tennis depth. I mean, it, you know, Serena's had two or three huge main challengers until the last maybe five to seven, eight years. The 365th best player can go win the British Open. We saw that happen with Ben Curtis in 2003. So I, it's, it's, it is though, but look, but look, you get into this area and, and it's so crazy to talk about the elite of the elite because you have to split hairs. So you have to split hairs. So, so that way in order to even pick someone, because that's just the, that's just how unbelievable these, these, these athletes have been. It's, it's remarkable. Um, real quick. Cause I know you have to run, give me in maybe a minute or two when people get done watching, what do you hope they say about this documentary? get done watching what they what they do is they um, it's an interesting question you know here's the here's the thing is everybody's going to take something different away from this right and that's totally fair and reasonable I think when you make movies uh, at least the ones I like to watch they they aren't you know sermons Uh, they are things that can lead the viewer to ask more questions uh, than they feel have been necessarily answered um one of the things that I always was trying to sort of examine as I was making this film and talking to all these people is what role did I and everybody else in the public have in the Tiger Woods story? And I always go back to what Pete McDaniel says when Tiger is walking up the 18th fairway at Augusta, and he talks about how, you know, all those years we built Tiger up to be this perfect sort of godlike figure, and that was Earl, and that was Nike, and that was the media, the public. And then the second he revealed himself to be human in 2009, you know, as Pete says, uh, says that we, we, we jumped on him with both feet. And there was a lot of glee taken in the media and in the public, um, you know, in terms of Tiger's downfall. And then the second he started playing golf again, we started building him up and saying he's a virtuous man now and how he's redeemed himself and all of this stuff. And I think that's a... That's a fascinating thing about American culture mm-hmm. um, and our relationship specifically to, to Tiger. And so I think that's a question everybody should, I, I would like everybody to ask themselves in terms of their relationship with him and other people we follow, like like MJ and other athletes. Um, so that was certainly one of the things that I was I was thinking about a lot of, uh, while I made the film. It is wild. It, it, that's what we do. We, you know, we, we want to rise. We want to rise up. We want to see him. We want them to give us our entertainment and be at the top of the mountain. Then we want to tear him down, and then and then always oh, work back up. Isn't this the great? Because we want the story again and all that. And I think I remember having Armin Katayan on, who obviously co-wrote with Jeff Benedict the bio on Tiger, which is just spectacular as well. And yeah, and we talked at length about you know what like. It's easy for, you know, Joe Blow in any town, city, wherever in the world to go, man, I can't believe Tiger Woods would mess that up. I mean, could you imagine having the the, the beautiful blonde bride and the money and the yachts and this and Nike and Titleist and, and, and all the sponsorships? You, no, dude. No, no, we can't imagine that. So if you had it, if you went from making fifty grand a year to making eighty million dollars a year and being a one billion, not million, billion dollar athlete... Don't even tell me that you'd be perfect. And that's the problem. That's the problem with how our society is, culture is, sports fans, etc. 
entertainment fans, movie, whatever, is that we assume that we would be perfect with all of those things that they have to deal with. You know, you go to the grocery store, they can't go to the grocery store. You go to the diner with a friend and grab a burger, they can never do that. You know, you all of a sudden have $25 million in your, in your bank account. You all of a sudden have 50 women out who want to sleep with you. You don't have that on a daily basis. So these people who like say that, Armin and I talk about it still to this day, like it drives us crazy because you have no idea what you're talking about. You're never going to face that, have that, that fame, that fortune, that celebrity Everywhere you go, Tiger Woods signing hats and magazine covers at, as a teenager. Give me a break. I mean, that's the thing. People don't get it. If you were in that situation, you can't tell me you wouldn't make mistakes. It's impossible. I think, I, I think that's absolutely right. And, I, you, know, I, 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 you know, there's been a lot of reactions to the guy that works for the National Enquirer um, who uh, is in the movie, and people will talk, you know, say, no, oh, he's so sleazy and blah, blah. I think the interesting thing about that is given what Pete says, it's interesting to me because I think in a lot of ways, Thane and the way he sort of both uh, wags his finger and uh, simultaneously talks about how he was great at American entertainment, it, it's very reflective of our culture and us and the way that we consume Tiger Woods and consumes his story. And so, it, it, you know, it's, it's endlessly fascinating. And that's sort of one of the reasons that I loved uh, having the chance to tell the story and not just do the you know, was Tiger Woods good or not, you know, a uh, simple, very uh, clean, you know, question uh, that, that could have been done. I, I think the complexity of the film and the story and all of our relationships uh, with Tiger is what made it so fascinating for me to make the thing. Tiger, it's amazing. The Rise, The Fall, The Return, two-part documentary, HBO Max. The director is Matthew Hamachek on Twitter, at Hamachek. Matthew, really appreciate the time. Well done here. This was amazing and, of course, continued success. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. Have a good one. Hey, Washington, D.C. We all miss the cheers, the tears, and the touchdowns. The excitement of a last-second field goal to get the heart pumping. The football season's finally here. So now is the time to head to Hollywood Casino at Charlestown Races to place your bets for Week 8. And placing your bets at the sportsbook at Hollywood Casino Charlestown Races is an easy way to earn exciting My Choice rewards all season long at the sportsbook at Hollywood Casino Charlestown Races. All gaming is regulated by the West Virginia Lottery. Gamble too much? Call 1-800-522-4700 for free confidential help. Must be 21. Everybody needs just the right amount of fuel to get going in the morning. For some, a nice McDonald's egg and cheese bagel is just enough to do it. Others might prefer a McDonald's bacon egg and cheese bagel. Or perhaps a sausage egg and cheese bagel. And there are those where nothing will do but a hearty McDonald's steak egg and cheese bagel. Four different breakfast bagels to get you going. Tomorrow morning, give your engine a head start at participating McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The ML Sports Platter back with you, brought to you by Stanley Law Offices. It's simple, just call Joe, visit stanleylawoffices.com. And of course, thanks to Brian Conboy of Mass Mutual, New York State. Go with Brian, your financial future. LinkedIn, Facebook, advisors.massmutual.com. So, last week, and I really, I wanted to spend some time on this because he's arguably the greatest baseball player of all time. Barry Bonds be damned, he's still, in my opinion, the home run king. The <clears throat> importance of 
this man in in the annals of history, uh, what he's done from a ambassador standpoint, his influence in the Negro Leagues. Um, you, I mean, how much more can you say about him? Um, the Hank Aaron Award, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, Georgia trustee by the Georgia Historical Society, um, groups he's founded, roads he paved. Oh, and then we can get into 25-time All-Star, two, uh, a World Series champion in 57. NL MVP, three gold gloves, two batting championships, four times led the NL in home runs, four times led the NL in RBI, 44 retired by the Braves and the Brewers, Braves Hall of Fame, Baseball Hall of Fame, most RBI of all time, 2,297, 6,856 career total bases, 1,477 career extra base hits. Somehow 97.83% on the first ballot. <laughs> like, who voted no for Hank Aaron? Hank Aaron just adds to the list of Hall of Famers from 2020 on down. Um, as, as we record this, it came down just last week. Hank Aaron, Don Sutton, and I am crushed by all of these. I am crushed. Hank Aaron, Don Sutton, Joe Morgan, Whitey Ford, Al Kaline, Tom Seaver, Bob Gibson, Lou Brock. You know, going back to a year plus. And I unfortunately, in all of my travels to Cooperstown, I've never met, I never have interviewed Hank Aaron. I tried to get him on the show for about a three to five year period. I was going through a couple different PR people. Never happened. Um... One of the guys I, I, I would have loved, loved to obviously have talked to, right? I mean, my goodness, of course. And it's just a huge, huge loss. And I can't imagine the next time we are in Cooperstown and we're up there sitting down and we're looking at the stage and all these guys are not there, <laughs> you know? I mean, that's when somebody says to me, when somebody asks me, when you go down to the Hall of Fame, what's your favorite moment? And it's the same moment every year. It doesn't change. It's when all the Hall of Famers are on there together, right on the stage. And you're like, my gosh, look at that. Look at the greatness from, not anymore, but look at Aaron to, uh, to, to Mays to Ford to Koufax to Boggs and Neout and Frank Robinson and K-Line and Morgan and Brock and Nolan Ryan and George Brett to Ripken to Griffey Jr., right, to Steve Carlton to Goose Gossage to Paul Molitor and Ryan Sandberg and now Mo Rivera and soon Derek Jeter, even though he's technically in because of the induction 2020 class, we just didn't have the ceremony yet, and Johnny Bench and... Mike Piazza. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And, you know, that's the moment. That's the stage. That's the collection. You are in a baseball time machine. 
And I realized that in a lot of cases where people, the history books, or I guess now kids are reading history on iPads or whatever the hell they do in school these days. But like when you open up a history book, when you read online, when you, when you hear people talk, Jackie Robinson helped pave the way. And of course he did. That was true. <clears throat> but there's a lot of other guys who did a ton for the game of baseball the exact same way that Jackie Robinson did. Jackie was the first. He was chosen. I think Monty Irvin might have been the first guy if his ear wasn't bothering him after the war and you know he was healthy from head to toe. You know, the Dodgers were really looking at him and he kind of wanted to be that guy, but he also thought about the repercussions of, am I going to get killed? Am I going to, you know, like, I'm black and I don't know if I can do this. And um, so there, there was a lot going on. And if, if you read the books on Monty Irvin, you'll know. Like, you'll know. And that's where I encourage everybody to always read books because you just, you know, you, you just, you know way more about everything if you read. That's just, it's just it, you know. And if you read more, you write better, which makes you speak better. And all of them are connected. Well, Hank Aaron comes along. I mean, he was playing in the Negro Leagues, you know, for the Indianapolis Clowns in 1952. That was only five years after Jackie Robinson, right? I mean, here's a guy who grew up born in Mobile, Alabama. I mean, it doesn't get more South or racist than that in the 19, you know, in the 19, um, I mean, he was born in the 30s, right? But racism was existing then, but it seemed to almost pedal towards even getting worse and worse and worse in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. You know, he's grown up as a kid in this, in this, in this area where just, I mean, it's total, total garbage the way that black people were treated. Horrible. And you're talking about down by the bay. Poor family. Couldn't afford baseball equipment. Black kid. You know, hitting bottle caps with sticks. The greatest home run hitter of all time learned how to hit a baseball by practicing hitting bottle caps with sticks. Created his own bats and balls out of materials he found on the streets. Tell that to the analytic assholes today. Tell that to the nerds in the front office that this dude learned the game that way. And there ain't no launch angle in that shit. And he idolized Jackie Robinson. Central High School, freshman and sophomore, played, you know, played baseball, obviously. They didn't have organized baseball. He didn't play for them because they didn't have organized baseball. So he went out and played for the mobile Black Bears, semi-pro team. This dude grinded, man. <laughs> you know, this is the thing that, like, when you look at all-time, big-time, best-ever like, these guys, yeah, there was some talent there, sure. But, like, if you didn't do the work that Hank Aaron did, if you didn't put in the time like LeBron James did early, if you didn't put in the time that MJ did, that Tiger did, like Jack Nicholas, the greats, the elite guys, Serena Williams, you know, like Annika Sorenstam. Like, yeah, there's talent, duh. There's God-given talent, duh. But what's the other part of it? Did you work your ass off? Did you grind? This dude grinded. And he grinded inside the walls of racism, inside travel teams, inside semi-pro teams, inside the Negro Leagues, 
And then fast forward to his major league career. Ed Scott. Well, actually, yeah, major leagues, Indianapolis, I mean, yeah, major leagues, because it's the Negro Leagues have been, I'm glad they, by the way, I'm glad that they they took a minute to think about the Negro Leagues being recognized as a professional league, Major League Baseball. What, bravo, Rob Manfred and Major League Baseball. For, oh, yeah, we're going to we're gonna recognize the Negro Leagues as a professional baseball league, as a major league. Now, bravo, man, it only took you 100, you know, baseball 100 years uh, to figure that out. Great. But it was Ed Scott. I mean, if you read the bio by Howard Bryant on Hank Aaron, you know you know that Ed Scott signed Aaron to that contract on behalf of the clowns of Indianapolis of the Negro League, you know, the Negro American League. He was there for three months. Again, 200 bucks per month. I mean, just grinding, grinding, grounding. Grinding, 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 rather. And with a standout play, he gets two offers, Telegram, one's from the Giants of New York, one's from the Braves of Boston. And this is what happened. I mean, the Giants... He was ready to go with the Giants, but the Braves offered 50 bucks more a month. <laughs> you imagine if he had said, sure, I'm in Giants, and we would have had Willie Mays in center field and then Hank Aaron in right field. And what's crazy is that people forget that like the Giants had the first all-black outfield in Major League Baseball history. That included Mays and Monty Irvin. Oh, by the way, could you imagine Amani Irvin and left Mays in center and Aaron and Wright. So, anyways, you fast forward all the way through, and he's crushing it in the Negro Leagues. No surprise. I mean, you're talking about three, three, uh, 366. You know, five homers, 33 RBI. Of course. You know, of course. 41 hits, nine stolen bases. <clears throat> you know, five tool player across the board. The Clowns, uh, it's a $10,000 contract. The Braves purchase it. And off we go. Um, Dewey Griggs, the scout for the Braves, and off we go. You know, he gets sent to the Northern League Class C farm team, which is a complete and utter slap in the face. And all he does is grind from there, right? He grinds through Class A. I mean, how is he in Class A? This is Hank Aaron. Didn't you see enough? Goodness. So he goes through the whole deal. Again, back to grinding, back to grinding, back to grinding. So, you know, he get he gets promoted. Uh, Jacksonville Braves, Class A affiliate, South Atlantic lead, and wins the league championship. Oh, okay, duh, you know. MVP, on and on it goes. And, you know, again, through all this time, he's playing in the South. Hello? And he's playing in Jacksonville? Ugh. He's playing as a pioneer in those leagues because... He was one of the first African-Americans to play in the league. You know, terrible racial segregation. Horrible. I mean, we're talking Jim Crow. We're talking Jacksonville. We're talking how he was separated from his team. He had to deal with all that bullshit just like Jackie did. It was no different for him, no different for Mays, no different for Monty Irvin, no different for Satchel Paige, no different for any of these guys. And ba-boom... We fast forward up and, you know, Aaron in 54 attends spring training with the Major League Club. And from the start, everybody's like, okay, well, he's finally here. You know, oh, yeah, you think? I mean, my God, why did you keep him? So that's it. And it was Milwaukee Braves into Atlanta Braves, 
home run record in Atlanta, won a World Series in 57, beating the Yankees, him and Eddie Matthews and company, year after they lost to the Yankees. Uh, that was the golden era of baseball, there's no question, the 50s and, and early 60s. I mean, come on. Um, and so after, you know, all all of the the start in the World Series and the prime of his career and the All-Star Games, I mean, you're talking about the home run record, the adversity he faced there, <clears throat> you know, a, a, I mean, the Vin Scully call of the of Hank Aaron's home run is a top five call in sports history. I mean, just, and I'm paraphrasing, I can't think of it word for word, but it's something to the tune of, and would you look at this in the deep south, a black man is getting a standing ovation or something like that word for word. You can go look it up. I don't know word for word what it is, but it's a top five call. It is absurdly great. And so fighting through all that stuff and the hate mail, the death threats. And all he did after he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, you know, in 82 and after his career and everything else, he goes into the front office of the Braves. You know, he's, he's, he's in the executive offices, senior vice president. You know, he starts getting involved with the bat group. He goes back to the Hall of Fame pretty much every year. He's promoting the game. He's doing everything and anything he can. You know, he was given, he's given, you know, think about the NAACP. I mean, my God, he was given the Spingarn Medal. He received Golden Plate Awards. He's been in state Hall of Fames. Yeah, we know the baseball stuff. And then you go <laughs> elsewhere. I mean, he was he was a big part in helping certain things with Ted Turner and, and everybody in Atlanta, getting the Olympics going. I mean, this guy, you know, then you go to the Presidential Citizens Medal, Bill Clinton. He gets a Presidential Medal of Freedom from George W. I mean, my word, what a life. Lombardi Award of Excellence. There's a new exhibit, by the way, in the uh, that they created about a decade ago plus. Just Hank Aaron in the Hall of Fame. Statues in multiple cities. Milwaukee and Atlanta. His involvement with the Georgia Historical Society. Educating black youngsters on why it's important to play baseball and, and, and important to believe in yourself. I mean, he's the home run king. He's a home run dude. He lived a home run life. And it is so crushing that now Hank Aaron is gone at the age of 86. Remarkable. And there are, you know, somebody says, oh, hey, baseball Mount Rushmore, right? You talk about the generation you played, how you dominated. You don't even have to go, you don't even have to describe why to put anybody on a Mount Rushmore when you get to a Hank Aaron. <laughs> Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods. But... But Hank Aaron, holy cow. I mean, there are, my Mount Rushmore of baseball is probably, I mean, again, not knowing what guys would have done if they were allowed to play Negro Leaguers and all the rest. Babe Ruth, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, and Jackie Robinson, you know, are, 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 are kind of my four. Hank Aaron's immovable. There's nobody who's going to come along who you're going to say, well, let, you could probably bump him, right? You could, eh. There's no bumping. Hank Aaron's there forever and 
what a career, what a life. Like I said, home run life, home run career, home run guy off the field, home run as an ambassador in everything he did. And for black athletes, baseball players, etc., in the deep south, blacks everywhere around the United States, like he did a lot of a lot of the same stuff Jackie Robinson did. He went through a lot of the same stuff. Just a few, just a couple years later, maybe. You know, just a, just a couple. I mean, it was within a five, six-year time frame. Jackie Robinson burst, you know, bust the doors down, Larry Doby's next, etc. And then everybody, you know, Mays, Aaron, everybody start, Monty Irvin, they all start coming in, they all start playing. Okay, but again, Hank Aaron, just a few years past Robinson breaks in with the Dodgers, he's dealing with that stuff in the minor leagues. He's dealing with that stuff it's spring training. He's dealing with that stuff in Mobile, Alabama, his semi-pro team. He's dealing with the same exact stuff. Rest in peace to the home run king. One of the greats in sports history. And one of the best people off it, Hank Aaron. Mike Lindsley with UML Sports Platter all over the major platforms. Spotify, Google, Apple, Stitcher, and Deezer. Make sure you do... Download, subscribe, leave feedback, and a five-star review. I'm on Twitter, at Mike L Sports, and of course, Instagram, Mike L Sports 1979 And be on the lookout for my 9-Minute with Mike Lindsley segments and ML Sports Takes on TikTok, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and IGTV. Thanks a lot to Empower Federal Credit Union, Rosie's Corner, CNY Electrical, Ken's Auto Detailing, and our great, great friends at the Allen Angus Pub, home of the best darn Angus Burger in town. If you're in and around Central New York, they've got the great burgers, entrees, great beers on tap, and you can take some bottles and cans to go as well during this corona pandemic. And be on the lookout for all the catered meals that they do for your office as well. AllenAngusPub.com and on Facebook, Allen Angus Pub. Matt, Randy, and the gang doing a great job there as well. Thanks so much for listening. A huge, huge thank you to all of you who keep the podcast going, of course, all of our sponsors, and uh, obviously a big tip of the cap thanks to our guest, Matthew Hamachek. The Rise, the Fall, the Return, Tiger on HBO Max. Go watch it. It's spectacular. And RIP, Henry Aaron. As I always tell you, enjoy the games. So we're here at Marshall's with Liz for some holiday shopping. She's really nailing it this year, isn't she? Oh, yep. She's got a record player for Amy. A gorgeous cozy sweater for Jason. And some hot pink fluffy slippers for her sister. The perfect gift. Wait a sec. <gasps> She's getting a pair for herself. Well, with prices this good, it would be rude not to. You know what? She totally deserves it. Oh, totally. Happy holidays, everyone. See you at Marshall's. Fabulous brands. Feel good prices at Marshall's. Cloud is powering tomorrow's transformative missions. Federal agencies are partnering with SAIC to help them meet these critical moments. Where bold moves require confident blueprints. Where you can accelerate transformation through consistency. Where you can innovate forward and never look back. SAIC quickly and securely migrates large-scale workloads to the cloud with the confidence you need to assure your mission. Learn more at SAIC.com cloud. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.
You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.